If you could please, let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 9. And Judges chapter 9, um, if you recall, the, the, the chapter previous to this, we saw Gideon uh, going after the Midianites. And uh, you recall that uh, the, the tribe of Ephraim were the, was the tribe that captured Zeba and Zalmunna, who were the princes of, uh, of, of Midian. And, uh, and then the Gideon and his army began to pursue the rest of the army and actually captured Zeba and Zalmunna. Uh, actually, I got that backwards. Yes, the princes. I'm sorry, that was in, in, in chapter 7, verse 8. Sorry about that. My, my eyes and my brain skipped. So in chapter 7, at the very end there, in uh, verse 24, there were two princes, Oreb and Zeb, and those are the two princes that the uh, Ephraimites had captured, and Gideon continued to pursue the two uh, other Midianite kings, and they captured them, and they, they killed them. And then after this great victory, you recall last week, Gideon did... Uh, an unusual thing. You know, after a, a victory of, of a battle, or perhaps it's some kind of spiritual victory, there is a tendency for us to kind of kick back and, and to kind of rest on our lees or to rest on our laurels. And I believe that's what happened with Gideon. After this battle was over with, uh, Gideon, instead of, um, instead of receiving uh, kinship, kingship, which is really what the, the children of Israel wanted to do. They wanted to make him a king. He was wise in that he didn't receive that. But one of the things that he did do, which was one of the worst things that he did in his whole life, actually, after uh, uh, toward the end here, was he made a gold ephod, if you recall. And that gold ephod became, in, in subsequent generations, and as time went on after him, uh, and certainly after his death, the children of Israel began to worship that golden ephod. And it's just so interesting how within the heart of man, no, nothing's, really, nothing's really changed. You know, you get something um, that's made from a man who had a great victory, and, and, and people, instead of worshiping God who gave the victory, they worshiped a man, or they worshiped a thing that the man made. And, uh, and this is something that is very inherent in our old nature. And so it became a problem for the children of Israel. And then um, it says in, uh, let's see here. It says in verse 30 that Gideon had 70 sons. And here we are in chapter 8, verse 30. We'll pick up there and get into chapter 9. It says, Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, and he had many wives. And so even though Gideon didn't receive this, uh, exaltation of being king. He certainly lived like a king. He had several wives, uh, 70, uh, 70 sons who were his own offspring and he, for, from several wives and also from a concubine who was nothing more than really a, a female maid who was in Shechem. She also bore him a son and his name was Abimelech. And that's really where we come into chapter 9 here, and it says uh, in the end of chapter 8, Now Gideon, the son of Joash, he died at a good old age, and we, he was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Oprah of the Abiezrites. And so it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot 
with the Baals, and made Baal Berith their god. And thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel. Remember, Jerubbabel was the name that his father Joash gave him, uh, which means let Baal plead, because he tore down, uh, Gideon tore down the altar, his father's altar, that they were worshiping Baal on. And his father, instead of reprimanding him or even putting him to death, he saw the character of his son and knew that what he was doing was wrong and instead named his son, let Baal plead, uh, for they were coming after him. The rest of the village was coming after him for, for that because they were Baal worshipers. And, and so what, what we get into now is in chapter 9, it says, uh, let's just read the first couple verses before we get into it. We're going to see the result of Gideon's relationships with his wives, and, and, and we're going to see tonight the result of one of his offspring, Abimelech, who was the son of the handmaiden or the concubine that uh, Joash, or I'm sorry, that Gideon had in Shechem. And we're going to see uh, the, the unfortunate thing that came about as a result of that union. It says, Then Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, he went to Shechem to his mother's brothers, and he spoke with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father. Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. And here's his pitch to them. Which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember that I am your flesh and bone. And so, here, Abimelech goes to his, fa- his mother's family and in Shechem and, and gets all of his mother's father's people and all their family all kind of looking at Abimelech. And, and he gives them these two options. And it, it's kind of interesting. And we'll look at that in just a few moments. But it says Abimelech, uh, and we know that Abimelech, his name means Melech is father or my father is king. That's literally what his name means. And, um, and surely there was a rivalry between Abimelech, this uh, son of uh, a concubine, and Gideon's 70 other sons who were brought about through normal relationships with many wives. Uh, when I say normal, I mean um, it wasn't normal that he had that many wives, but you get the point. <laughs> and so it says uh, Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, and uh, throughout this chapter, you're going to see Gideon not mentioned by his name Gideon. It's going to be Jerubbabel. And uh, in fact, the last time we hear Gideon's name is in chapter 8, verse 35. And his name, Gideon, remember, means uh, a hewer or a feller, uh, meaning somebody who, who is a warrior, basically, in a sense. And now his new name is Let Baal Plead. And so... Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, he went to Shechem. And Shechem, if you remember, was located uh, in between this valley, if you will. And in fact, in Israel, there's a, there's a valley. It's called Mount Gerizim, and it's on the south part. And then there's this valley in between. And in this valley was where Shechem was located. And on the other side of that valley is Mount Ebal. And you recall that this was the area that Joshua had brought the children of Israel to. Remember when we were in Joshua in chapter 8, uh, fresh off of their victories from Jericho and, and Ai, 
uh, Joshua led the group, uh, the, all of the Israelites, to this place in Shechem, right there at the foot of these mountains. And that's where we had the blessings and the cursings. And, and really it was just God making them accountable to His Word. And, um, and so that's where this, uh, this whole thing happened, is right there in this town of Shechem. In fact, that's the scene and the setting of most of what we're looking at tonight. And so, notice what he says in verse 2. He says, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel reign over you? So that's option one. Or option two, that one, reign, that one will reign over you. And then he puts in the little uh, encouragement here, Remember that I'm your flesh and I'm of your bone. So here, Abimelech, he wants to be king. He has a desire to be king. And, um, and we're going to look at that a little bit later, just how you know, someone who desires to, to have leadership when God hasn't called them to it is a, is a dangerous place to be in. And notice that Gideon never really gave them, or I'm sorry, not Gideon, uh, notice that Abimelech never gave to these people of Shechem, he never gave them a third choice, and that is, or not at all. You can choose me, or you can choose the 70 sons of my brothers, of, of Gideon, my father, or you don't have to choose anybody. But naturally, he wants to set up two options and place himself in the very best light that he can. And so that's what he does. He, um, and here we can see the, the springing forth, really, of Abimelech's heart. He had in his heart this selfish ambition to be a leader. You know, and he was sort of like the black sheep of the family. So there's probably something in his heart where he's got something to prove. And perhaps you've been in a situation like that. Perhaps you're the black sheep of the family. Perhaps you've been looked down upon your brothers and your sisters. And there is the desire to want to kind of make the, 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 you know, to level the playing field, so to speak, and to rise above all of their comments and all of their snarky looks that they've given you over the years. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why, you know, he wanted to rise to prominence. And, and we certainly can't rule out just the, the good old-fashioned pride of the human heart. You know, everybody wants to rule. Everybody wants to be a leader. But God hasn't called everyone to be a leader. And it's something, leadership is something that God calls a person to. It's not something that they can necessarily train for. You can train somebody at West Point. You can train somebody in anything, but if God hasn't chosen them to do it, if He hasn't equipped them for that task, for that purpose, then it's not going to uh, fare very well. In fact, it's, it's better to, to let God make the decisions, make, let Him make the choice of who He wants to do certain things, and, and it's always going to work out. And, and we must never forget, though, too, that the, the people that He chooses, it doesn't mean that they're perfect. Sometimes God's choices of, of a leader can shock us sometimes because we realize that they're not perfect people. And so we can get discouraged, we can start looking at others, and but God's still going to use this person because uh, the, the, the very thing that God called them to, He's using that office, if you will, to refine and to work in them just as He's doing in everybody else. It's just His vehicle to get that person closer to Him as well and to get them dependent. And all the while, through the process, everyone's going to see the leader being changed. And that's really the, the thing that we have to think about, you know, is that as we go through these things, God is changing and God is uh, reforming and shaping. And th there's really no substitute for that. You, you can't go to school for that. 
Um, I didn't go to school, and I know that God is changing me uh, from the very beginning. Ever since I've been here in the church, when I started in 1995, He's been changing me and working in me and changing. And it's just been a, a wonderful process, as you all know, because He's doing the same thing with you. He's doing the same thing with you. But in this person, in this Abimelech, we see selfish ambition really to be a leader. He wanted to be a leader so bad. And um, in Psalm 75, it says this. <clears throat> Excuse me, the psalmist says, Do not lift up your horn on high and do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation, or in the King James, it says, For promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup and the wine is red. It is fully mixed and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. But I will declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob and all the horns of the wicked I will also cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. And, and that's really a, a wonderful verse. God is the one who puts down one and sets up another. And we don't always understand why that is. And so we see that God is, is going to allow Gideon now. His time has passed. And now this uh, son from a concubine from Shechem is now rising up and trying to usurp authority, promote himself. And... Um, you know, we even see that in our own country. We see that in, um, uh, even in the elections uh, that have happened and even the elections that are going on right now for different uh, seats across our country. There are men and women who are so uh, bent on their own agenda, so, so, uh, and it's not even so much for the people so much as it is an agenda for a certain group of people, and they will do anything and then this is true in politics. It's true in, in other things, too. Some people want uh, authority and leadership so bad that they're willing to do anything and everything for it. And they'll, they'll rob, they'll cheat, they'll steal, they'll do whatever they can. And the, and the Bible calls this idolatry because even a position or an office can be idolatrous. It can be idolatry to do anything so that you can get to that place, so that you can rule, so that your agenda can be set and, and to do the things that you want. If you remember, there was a, a mother um, in, the, in, in 2 Kings, we see it in chapter 11, and we also see it in 2 Chronicles 22. We're not going to go there tonight, but after her son had died, who was king of Israel, uh, Athaliah, who was the daughter of Jezebel, she actually kills all of the king's sons. She kills all of the nobles and, and after her son had died because she herself wanted to be queen. She wanted to be king, actually. She wanted to be the, the leader of Israel. And when you look at her mother Jezebel and you look at Athaliah, you, you can see they're kind of like two peas in the pod. They, uh, Athaliah certainly learned a lot from her mother. And her mother really gave her a... Um, uh, really a heritage of nothing but deceit and idolatry and um, and a lust for power. And so Athaliah, we see in, in 2 Kings 11 and 2 Chronicles 22, we see her uh, murdering, thieving, cheating, stealing, lying, doing whatever she can to get into power. And we know that her reign ended and it didn't end well. And so we see all of this in the life of Abimelech as well.
And so in verse 3 in our text tonight, it says, And his mother's brothers, they spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. So now they're looking more at, because he's our brother, he's our blood, we're going to get behind him. Rather than seeing that there is actually a door number three, and that is to not choose anybody. But again, it's so funny. Sometimes it's really good to ask questions. You know, when you're given options in life, you know, somebody will come along and say, well, you can do this or you can do that. And the, the wisest thing to do is to say, well, what about this? <laughs> and usually the person who's giving you those choices wants you to pick one or the other. And they, and they will put the, the thing that they really want you to choose, they'll put that forward and, give, and substantiate that claim. But we always have to look beyond, well, what other options are available? And sometimes, I know in my own life, I, I can tend to fall into that trap where I'll look at two options and think those are the only two options. And God is saying, have you considered this? Hmm, didn't consider that at all, Lord. Thank you for that thought. You know? And so, uh, whenever you're presented choices, always be mindful of who's giving you those choices and think if there are other options available because... Uh, a lot of times, uh, it's times like that that we can be deceived ourselves or manipulated into doing things that we ought not to do. And so, so verse 4, it says, So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith. So this is a, Baal Berith is just a local Canaanite deity. And so they take money out of the collection of this, um, this um, idolatrous temple and they give it to Abimelech. And what does he do with that money? He hires worthless and reckless men. <laughs> That's what it says. He hired worthless and reckless men and notice they followed him. You know, whenever you have to hire somebody to follow you, you know there's a pretty good indication that you're not worth following. Because usually when people follow, when, when a group of people follow a leader, it's because of who that leader is in the Lord and who that leader represents and, and how he leads. Is he a, is he a good leader? Is he a, is he a guy who really doesn't care? Is he, is he only concerned about money and his own reputation? Is he concerned about his own skin? Or does he think about others? Is, you know, and these are things that uh, we have to always look at. And so he hires these, um, with this 70 shekels of silver, he hires a bunch of worthless and reckless men. And then it says, verse 5, Then he went to his father's house at Oprah, and notice what he does. He kills his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbabel. So Gideon's other 70 sons, this one son who was born by a, a concubine, he's going to get the ultimate revenge uh, because of perhaps how they've shunned him. Perhaps he feels, and maybe they didn't shun him at all. Maybe it's something the devil was just playing with his mind and saying, you're not like the legitimate sons of, of, of Gideon. And so now he comes, and in order to secure his own title, he has to kill all the other possibilities. And, and we see that over and over again in the Bible. We see it in history. We see it in Henry VIII, or you know, Henry the, uh, in, in England, we, we see the, those kinds of things. We saw it in Herod's life. That's really who I meant to, to talk about. We see it in Herod's life. He was so hungry and jealous for power, he, he didn't want anybody. Any threat to his throne, he would just kill the person, even his own family. And so it was probable that this was the motive uh, for Abimelech and the hatred that he hated his 70 other brothers. 
And again, this thing has lived out in society and culture ever since man was created. It's just continued, it's perpetuated. And, um, and so in verse 6 it says, And all the men of Shechem, they gathered together, all, uh, all of Beth Milo, which uh, Beth Milo means house of the fortress, and they went and they made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. And I love these uh, descriptions in the Bible because they mean something. Whenever you see something like this, it was a location uh, certainly unknown to us now and probably even unknown uh, uh, several hundred years ago or even a thousand years ago. Because how long does a tree live? You know, uh, Some trees, like the olive trees and, and Gethsemane, uh, some of the, the trees that are there are from the root system of the trees in Jesus' time. But uh, things get burned down, things get rooted up. But I love how it, it gives a specific place, this terebinth tree. And there was something special and unique about this place. You, uh, we don't have the time and to, to go into it tonight, but a lot of things happened at this place, at this pillar that was in Shechem. And so as we get into verse 7 through 15, we're going to see... Uh, perhaps the very first parable in the Bible, and it's given by Jotham, because you recall that um, when when they came and he killed, oh, I forgot to mention something in verse 5, excuse me. It says, Then when he went to his father's house at Oprah, and he killed his brothers, the seventy sons of Jerubel, on one stone, so he massacred them, killed them. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left because he hid himself. And wouldn't you hide yourself? And so God allows a remnant, someone to escape, you know, and I love that. Um, and so all the men of Shechel, uh, verse 6, gathered together all, at Beth, uh, all of Beth Milo, and they went and they made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. And now when they had told Jotham, he went and he stood on top of Mount Gerizim, and he lifted his voice and he cried out. And, and one thing you have to remember is, uh, again, uh, Mount Gerizim is, uh, is a mountain on the south side. And then there's this plain in between. And right in the center of that plain is the town or village of Shechem. And then on the other side of that, north of that, is a uh, Mount Ebal. And so now Jotham, this youngest son who had escaped of the 70 that were killed, he gets up on top of the mountain and he says, listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may also listen to you. And here he gives a parable of, of trees. And this is really interesting. And he's setting up basically an example between um, himself or Gideon's uh, family versus the uh, Abimelech himself. And so he gives this parable and he says, The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Should I cease giving my oil, with which they honor God and men, and to go and to go to sway over trees? And then the trees said to the fig tree. So now the, the trees come to uh, the fig tree and say, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? And then the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine with cheers both God which cheers both God and men and go to sway over the trees? And then all the trees finally, after 
all of these different uh, trees uh, refuse to rule over the trees. You know, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine. It's kind of interesting that these all symbolize Israel, by the way. And then, but the vine, um, uh, the, the, the trees come to the bramble, which is really just a brush. It's really nothing to be used of except to light fire and to use for cooking as sort of like kindling kind of thing. And the tree said to the bramble, you come and you reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. And really what um, this young man Jotham is doing is showing that Abimelech is this bramble. He's the he's the 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 the, the weed really that really has no use in in a sense. It's just really nothing to be used but but for kindling a fire again. You know, but these other, the, the vine and the olive tree and the fig tree, they all have very specific purposes. They all have good purposes. But now you've got this vile man, uh, Abimelech, and you're going to anoint him king over Israel? Is that what you really want to do? And so notice the, the, the prophecy here. That, that Then come and take your shelter in my shade. Are you going to find, are, is the forest, are, is, is this tree, all these trees, are they going to come and find shelter underneath a bramble? It's kind of like the other way around, right? And, and it just shows you when people are really desperate, they'll, they'll, they'll choose anything and anyone, and especially if that vile person has some, uh, some promise of, of victory or promise or uh, boasting in some great gift or ability. You know, uh, people can be uh, confused, people can be manipulated, people can be deceived. And um, some of the best people that are in authorities, even in our own world today, uh, are really base people. They probably shouldn't be there. But God has allowed them to be there for His own purposes. Now notice verse 16, it says, Now therefore, if you love, and here he continues. Now remember, he's up on this mountain, and this being up on Mount Gerizim to the south and speaking down to them, it's like a natural amphitheater. And so uh, he's able to speak, and that voice can cover quite a distance. And so he says to them, Now therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubabel and his house, and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you, he risked his life, and he delivered you out of the hand of Midian, but you have risen up against my father's house this day, you've killed his seventy sons on one stone, and made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your brother. And if you have acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. And, but if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And so we see... Uh, uh, Jotham here really putting them to the test and saying, you know, if, if, if this is the man of the hour, if this is who you really want, and if it's true that my dad was nothing and all that he did for you, if that wasn't something, um, then choose Abimelech. If this is what you want, then you got him. Have fun. That was kind of what he's saying. But he says, but if you have risen up this day and killed his sons and made Abimelech uh, king over you, 
then um, you know, let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And we're going to see this prophecy actually coming to pass toward the end of the chapter. And no doubt God gave this young man who was the only survivor of the 70 brothers, uh, he's the only one that's left uh, of that family. And so he really is led by the Lord, and the Lord gives him really a word through a parable. And then he, de- then he describes the parable. He gives the interpretation of the parable to uh, the men of Shechem. And so, you know, it's interesting here in verse 18. You know, he says, But you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the men of Shechem because he is your brother. You know, there we have to be very careful with family loyalty. Um, and if you think of it, these men have killed in cold blood the 70 sons of Gideon. And, and here they are, and, you know, they're, they're still, the, the men of Shechem are being loyal uh, with Abimelech are loyal to him even though they've done that he has done this treacherous act and just because he's family. And you know there are things that happen in families that are are horrible. Um, in every family uh, that there are a number of things that can happen and it, it's just part of life unfortunately that you you know when you get to know somebody you start to talk to them and then you find out the secrets of the family and you hear some things that are just horrible. You know Things where uh, I don't even want to mention them, you know, just horrible, horrible things. But we have to be careful, you know, when it really comes down to it, we have to remember that we are servants of God and we have to be loyal to Him more than loyal to uh, even a family member who has done something wrong. We can't act like nothing ever happened. And if we're called upon to tell the truth, we need to tell the truth. And that can be really hard to do. Because remember, we stand before God, not before man. But if we let family loyalty and family blood uh, get in the way of truth, we've got a problem. And so that's something that we have to come to terms with. And certainly that's what um, uh, Jotham is talking to Abimelech and the men of Shechem about. And so, uh, let's see. Verse 21, it says, And Jotham, after giving them this speech, what does he do? The very natural thing to do is to run, is to get away, because now he's going to have a bunch of people looking after him. So Jotham ran away, verse 21, and he fled, and he went to Be'er and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. Now, Be'er in Hebrew really just means a well. And as you know, there were many wells in the land that day, in, in that day. And so there's no, really no way of knowing exactly where this is, and it really doesn't matter. So he went to a well um, and where he dwelt there, and he did that for fear of Abimelech, his brother. And so these two men are the only ones alive out of all of Gideon's uh, offspring. One is the survivor of the 70, and the other is a rogue who is desiring power for himself. Notice in verse 22, it says, After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years. So now he's three years into it. And notice what happens in verse 23, that God sent a spirit of ill uh, will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. And you know, there comes a time, isn't this true? There comes a time that if you're not dealing truthfully and if you're not walking in the truth, 
that your company begins to stink. <laughs> Have you ever been around somebody that they've done something wrong and eventually uh, as you're uh, with them and maybe even living in the same house and they've done this horrible thing, eventually uh, your acquaintance, your family member, whoever it may be, uh, something just starts to stink and it, it's not a good thing. You know, there's a, a phrase that we use and that I've heard and it's what goes around comes around. And maybe you've heard the phrase, well, they're going to get their day in court, meaning someday they're going to be held accountable for what they've done. And what goes around comes around. In fact, um, all those who are involved in evil plots and schemes, they often eventually go against one another. And see, that's the wonderful thing about uh, Christians is of all the people on the earth, even though we can disagree about things, we have the greatest thing in common, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's really what holds us together. He is the unifier. He's, we have unity even if we don't agree. And even if we have personality problems with people, we can still be unified in Christ and we can still love each other. But when you're devising evil plots and schemes, eventually even the enemies themselves, they, they, they go against each other. And, and this is true. This is true even in the world. You see these things happening all the time. Because whenever there's wicked people, there's wicked hearts. And wherever there's wicked hearts, there is deceit and there's mistrust and there's suspicion. And then there's murder. And then there's cover-up. And then there's lying. And then there's cover-up. And then more murder. <laughs> and so in Psalm 37, I love what uh, the psalmist says. It says, The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. And notice verse 13, it says, The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. He sees that his day is coming. And see, God doesn't, he, he, does, he never delights in the death of the wicked. He doesn't delight in, in causing somebody to be caught. But there comes a point, and we've all seen this, even in our own lives, where if we don't repent of something, there, there comes a point where God says, Enough is enough. And God will call you to account for that thing. Your day does come. And thank God for His grace because uh, there have been so many who have been involved in certain things and have truly repented and God will never remember it. And, and that is such a wonderful mystery of God because we know that there are other people who go along the same road doing the same thing and for some reason they get caught, they get busted sooner than maybe you did. Maybe you were doing something for years and never got caught and yet someone else does it for three months, whatever that is, and then they get caught, they get busted. And you know that person's day had come when God would not allow them and that's why our relationship with the Lord is so unique. It's not a cookie cutter kind of thing. It's a relationship that Jesus has with us and he looks at each of our lives as unique and he's dealing with us on an individual basis we're not like anybody else in the world and that's why it's so good to not compare each other with one another because it's really not fair because God knows what he needs to do in me he knows what he needs to do in you so it's really not fair for me to put my own standard of what I think is right upon you or perhaps the grace that God has given me. I can't expect, um, I know God is gracious for everyone, but he has a limit on what he's going to do in someone else's life that may be different than mine. And, um, and that's a mystery that belongs to him. He knows my, he knows what motivates me. He knows what I'm thinking. He knows how long I've been thinking. And so he knows exactly what to do to get the result that he needs. And so that's where we just really have to end it. But notice, 
that God sent a spirit of ill will uh, between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And this is an interesting thing because most of the time when we think of God, we think of him as um, never having... um, He's certainly a, a good God, there's no doubt about it. But the thing that the mystery that we don't like is that God has control and authority over all things. And that includes the dark things. And God never uh, does something uh, to tempt anyone, He, he, he doesn't uh, do anything to uh, bring about something. The thing we have to um, understand about the enemy of our souls, Satan, is that he is always waiting. It's almost like, and this is true, God is protecting us. And so around you, there is this bubble in a sense, and the devil wants to get in at any weak point that he can see. It, it, it's, it, you've all seen the, the movie um, uh, Jurassic Park and those velociraptors. I, I, I use this uh, from time to time because it's such a, a wonderful illustration and, and I don't really know if they really did this in, in, in the natural because we don't really know. But in the movie, they, they talk about these velociraptors and they were going around to the, uh, the fence, this electrified fence all around the compound and they would hit each different area to find weaknesses in the fence that they might break through. And, and that's exactly what the enemy does. He's always trying so hard. And if God lifts his finger for one moment and says, I will allow it, because God knows the end of it. He knows what it's going to do. That's the mystery of, of iniquity. God will allow certain things to come into our life. He doesn't make it happen, but He allows it to happen. Because the devil, all he is bent on is destruction and temptation and to destroy. That's all he wants to do. And God, by His wonderful grace, protects us from these things only unless he says, okay, I'm going to allow you. You know. In fact, in James, what does it say? In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. So when we look at this verse and it says that God sent a spirit of ill, um, we can't assume and can't, can't think that, well, well God is just, you know, from his own self, from his own being, he is making this happen. He doesn't really have to do anything because God just has to basically allow something and the devil is right there ready to pounce at any given time on any given person for any given thing. And it's only the wonderful protection of God. You know, his mercies are new every morning and I'm so glad he shields us in ways that we don't even understand we're being shielded. But that is our lovingly heaven, loving Heavenly Father. But back in James it says, But each one is tempted, notice, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so God doesn't really have to do anything. He just has to lift his hand of protection over a certain area to allow the devil to do something. And I love that God specifies what, he, what, um, what the devil can and cannot do. You remember, even in the book of Job, we see this in Job chapter 1, in verse 6, where it says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came up from among them. And the Lord said to Satan, where, 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 From where do you come? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Now this may sound like a, an, a, kind of like a, an unfortunate uh, invitation. And I'm sure Job is going, Well, why don't, why don't you ask him to consider somebody else? 
But see, the thing is, God knows the end from the beginning. He knew from that moment, he knew what the end of Job was going to be and how God was going to bless him so much more than what he had started off with and the work that he was going to do in Job. The devil doesn't know that. God knows that. But all the devil knows is I can hurt. I can inflict pain because the devil doesn't know to what level God is going to allow this to go on. And so the devil, he's just like a thirsty, ravening wolf, uh, a ravening bear, and he just wants to kill, and he doesn't care how he does it. He doesn't even care the purposes of God. He just wants to destroy because that's where, that's his character. He's a destroyer, he's a thief, he's a liar, and he's been that way from the very beginning. But this is what he said. He says, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him in all of the earth, a blameless and a man upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you, made, uh, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? And here it is. God had made a hedge around this man, around his family, his whole household. Consider that like the bubble in a sense. The devil's saying, uh, sure, I've considered him, but you know what? You've got him protected. And, you know, he's, he's a good man, and he prays, and he, he offers sacrifices for his kids. I mean, he's an upright, honest, hardworking, God-fearing man. He says, You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in land. But then the devil says, But now stretch your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, And here is the permission. Notice that the devil couldn't do anything of his own until God gave him permission. The Lord said to him, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. Notice, you can do whatever you want, but don't touch him. And this is kind of interesting because, you know, um, he says, Only do not lay a hand on his person. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So God gave him permission. But God gave him parameters. God gave him limits to what he could do. Now, God knew whether his sons and daughters were going to go to heaven or not, where their faith really was. God already knew that. He knew what was ultimately going to be the end of the whole thing. And he even allowed Satan, through a series of things, to even allow his, his children to be killed. And then, and then you know what happens uh, after that. God you know, allows him to even touch his health. And God all the time was looking in Job's heart and refining him and refining him and refining him. And so when you find yourself in difficult spots, you know, even Mauricio, tonight as, you, as you're laying in that uh, hospital bed, know that God is working. And I know that at the end of this, He's got a great plan for your life. And He's going to do wonderful things that, um, that He knows uh, perhaps could have been done no other way than to allow this to come into your life. He's doing things even outside of you in your family that you can't even understand right now. And, and I'm not saying that I understand either, but he's, he's working not only on you, and, and he doesn't do it because he's mad at you. Sometimes it's to bring you closer to him and his love for you. So that's good. That's good news, isn't it? And it also reminds me, you know, the Lord has authority, you know, and he sends a, a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And I I love in Matthew chapter 8, this is a, a passage that we all know very well. And having been just to Israel, we've been to this place where, uh, remember when Jesus crossed over from, 
the, the land of Gennesaret, which is on the west side, and he goes over to the east side. There's a place over there, um, and uh, the place of the Gadarenes, and that's where we uh, had the, the men who were demon-possessed. And you recall what happened, that the, the demons, they asked permission. The, the demons, in these two men, as Jesus is conversing with these men, he tells them, um, you know, that the demons actually say to Jesus, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And here again is Jesus' authority over all things. And again, they could not go unless he permitted it. You notice how they asked permission? I mean, look, look at the words. <laughs> so it says, if you cast us out, permit us to go into the herd of swine. <laughs> And I love that. They had to ask for permission. Remember that. Anything that happens in any of our lives, uh, even when it's difficult things, it's only by the it's either by the direct will of God or His permissive will, again, because He knows all things. He knows what's necessary. He knows what's necessary even for people outside of us watching in on us while we're going through the crucible, while we're going through something. Family members are looking. Family members are being challenged. And, and they are going through the process of sanctification. And God's saying, I'm doing a wonderful work. You can't see it. I'm doing a wonderful work in you and also in others around you. And you can't see it. You can't see it. But maybe one day you will. And, um, and sometimes it may take us, you know, someday when the Lord uh, takes us and we're in glory, we're going to look back and we're going to perhaps question the Lord, Lord, why would you allow this certain thing to happen in my life? And I am sure we're all going to be confounded and amazed at the Lord's response for some of the darkest areas of our life, the darkest periods in our life. And, and, and He'll be able to tell us with pinpoint accuracy, you know, when I allowed this to happen in your life, you didn't know it, but there was somebody on the other side of the world that heard about what you were going through, and that's all they needed to come to faith. They couldn't believe what had happened through a series of, of relationships and, and hearing about what you're going through. They, they give their heart to you. you and and you, you didn't even understand what I was doing in your wife while you were going through this thing, what I was doing in her and what I was doing in your son and your daughter. You had no idea what I was doing, but I was doing a good work. And, and, and God, I'm sure, is able to show us the fruit of it somehow. And then we're going to be like, and then I can see the Lord smiling and saying, Now, I couldn't have done that any other way. I used you. You're my servant. And I used you to do this. And I allowed you to go into deep waters with me. And through the other side, look what I did. Look what I did. It's great stuff. So back into our text, it says, um, uh, in verse 23, let me, let's back up to that again. It says, And God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the, and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the crime done to the seventy sons of Jerubbabel might be settled, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who aided him in the killing of his brothers. Because remember, Abimelech got the 70 shekels of silver out of, their, um, out of their temple of Baal, and he hired people to go against his brothers to kill them. And so now the men of Shechem are starting to smell a fish, and they're not really liking this ruler that they've allowed to be over them. 
And remember, Abimelech is like that bramble bush that uh, Jotham had prophesied about. This this man who was really worthless in a sense uh, because of his own selfish ambitions and his murder and his uh, intrigue and all that he did. And so it says that, verse 25, And the men of Shechem, they set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by along that way. And it was told to Bimelech, and um, I love what the Proverbs says. It says, Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. And ultimately, God is going to see that Abimelech and all of his deceit and all the things that he's doing, he's going to have his day. And in Proverbs uh, 22, verse 24, it says this, Make no friendship with an angry man. And can you imagine uh, these men of Shechem, that, you know, when Abimelech first came to them, trying to woo them to make him their ruler or their king, in a sense, over them, that you know, they certainly could have uh, noticed that there's something not right here. He's got an axe to grind. Uh, and so the Proverbs 22, it says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your own soul. And we're going to see that that is exactly what happens to the men of Shechem. But notice what happens in verse 26. Now we get uh, a new upstart who has the same desire in his, his heart. He wants to become a leader. His name is Gael, and he was the son of Ebed. He came with his brothers, verse 26, and he went over to Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. And so they went out into the fields, and they gathered grapes from their vineyards, and trod them, and made merry. And they went into the house of their God, and they ate, and they drank, and they cursed Abimelech. So now this new upstart named Gael comes in, and because they're already sick of Abimelech, they're kind of liking this guy, Gael. And so, then Gael, the son of Ebed, Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who is Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel, is not his, and is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? And so this man, Gael, is really appealing to the older men into some of the history of, uh, of their town. Remember, Hamor, the father of Shechem, remember Shechem was the one who had that, who raped Dinah, who was uh, the men of Israel's, it was their, their, um, it was their sister. If you remember, it was uh, the daughter of Leah, the Shechem, who was the prince, and Hamor was the father of the town that, um, that he had raped uh, Dinah. And, and then we, we hear about what happened after that, how they just killed all the men, uh, the, the brothers, knowing that what had happened. And so he's trying to appeal to this older uh, generation and the, and the patriarchs earlier in the town's history and, um, and really disdaining uh, Abimelech and Zebel, who is his compatriot in a sense, a, a man who was uh, a prominent one in the town. Him and uh, Abimelech are like this. And so, in verse 29 it says, If only this people were under my authority. So here, Gael is saying this to them. And notice the arrogancy of this man. He says, If only this people were under my authority. You know, can, can you... I can almost hear, you know, just... 
you know, such a proud heart. Uh, you know, I want to rule. And if only they were under my authority, I could really do something. I could really bless them. I could really, you know, bring them to victory. He says, then, if only they were under my authority, I would rule and I would remove Abimelech. And so he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. So through some means, he gets back to Abimelech and says, hey, get yourself ready and let's go to battle. And, and so we see in this Gael just another greedy man for power and authority, just like Abimelech. It's kind of interesting how the Lord raised up a one, one man who was greedy for power against another man who was greedy for power. And it reminds me of Absalom. If you remember, um, Absalom had this selfish ambition to rule. Remember after the uh, David's adultery with Bathsheba and killing Uriah the Hittite, that uh, David's uh, popularity, even though he was still king, was he was starting to stink uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the eyes of the people. And that's when his son, Absalom, remember there was a time when Absalom would stand outside the gate and um, he would listen to people and he would say to them at the gate, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. And moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made a judge in the land and everyone who has a suit or cause would come to me and I would give him justice. And so we see the same kind of heart, the same kind of attitude in this gentleman, um, uh, Gael, as we see in Absalom, as we see even in Abimelech. And you know, it's interesting that even though there are many people and there's different cultures, there's different eons of time, when it really comes down to it, the heart of man is the same. You know, everyone has this, uh, you know, these opportunities to either do right or to, to do wrong. And within each of us, there is this propensity, especially in our old nature, to give in to the things of the flesh and desire uh, things that just please our flesh or things that please our ego or our pride or our sense of well-being or our, uh, some kind of estimation of ourselves. And, and it's no, no different here. And, 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 and even today, there are people like this, you know, and hopefully none of us are like them, you know, that really desire to have authority and power. You know, God, again, puts those where he wants, but... Um, we better be careful about our motivations for why we want to be in power or have some kind of authority. So notice in verse 30, it says, When Zebo, the ruler of the city, he heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused. Because remember, Zebo, the ruler of the city, and Abimelech, they are kind of like two peas in the pod. So Zebo is sort of like a spy in the city, unbeknownst to uh, Gael. So in verse 31, so he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly now, saying, Take note, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are. They're fortifying the city against you. Now therefore, get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And at this time, it was the time of harvest, and so they would come out into the fields, the people of Shechem, and, and get the grapes or whatever grain, whatever it was, and bring them back into the city. And so... Uh, let's see here, verse 33. And it shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. So Abimelech and his men are outside the city. So they're saying, as soon as the sun is coming up in the morning, you shall rise early, rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him 
come out against you, you may do to them as you find opportunity. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him, they rose by night. They lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. And when Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance to the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gael, now, you know, I don't know about you, but as I'm reading this, I can picture it in my mind as Gael is standing outside the gate of the city and he's looking and he sees, and it says here that he's out there with the ruler of the city, who is Zebel. Zebel, remember, is confederate really with Abimelech. And so he's standing outside the city gate, as rulers would do, as important people would do. And Gael's looking out, and he's saying, People are coming down from the tops of the mountains. This is in verse 36. But Zebel said to him, You see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. So Gael spoke again and said, See, people are coming down from the center of the land, and another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. And then Zebel said to him, Where indeed is your mouth now? (laughs) With which you said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out, if you will, and fight with them now. So uh, Zebel, the ruler of the town, is saying, you know, you know, put your money where your mouth is, son. Uh, Here they are, you know. And so now Gael's got to rise to the occasion and go out to battle Abimelech and this uh, company of men. And so Gael went out, verse 39, leading the men of Shechem, and they fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled from him, and many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. So as they're fighting, they're going toward Abimelech and his men are chasing the men, killing the men out in the fields until they get right up to the gate of the city. And so, uh, let's see. Then Abimelech, verse 41, dwelt at Aramah, Aruma, I'm sorry, and Zebel drove out Gael and his brothers so that they would not dwell in Shechem. And it came about on the next day that the people went out into the field and they told Abimelech. So now the the people of Shechem go out again, even afterwards. And so he took his people, divided them into three companies, and lay in wait in the field. And he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city. And he rose against them and attacked them. And then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And the other two companies rushed on all upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So finally, Abimelech wipes out the city of Shechem. All the men in it, all the women, everything. And it says in verse 45, So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city, he killed the people who were in it, and he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. And whenever something is sowed with salt, you're basically pronouncing a curse on it because nothing is really going to grow. When you put salt on a land or on an area all around, it basically just kills anything. You know, for the, for the, the fruit of the ground and, and things of that nature, it just really spoils an area. And we see that um, the kings did that. Often when they would come against a city, they would just sow it with salt and it just made it um, unfit. And um, history tells us that, um, that around the 12th century, uh, or I'm sorry, around the time of Jeroboam, remember um, that Solomon, after his death, that Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the, the the, the, the city or the, the country of Israel was divided into two, as you recall. And Jeroboam actually rebuilt Shechem 
uh, in spite of the fact that it had been sown with salt and, and, and pretty much useless for quite a while. And then Jeroboam was the one who actually set it up his capital there at that time. But notice, going back to verse 46, it says, Now when all the men of the tower of Shechem, so, so in this city there was a tower, and they used that for lookout um, and for protection. And so now all the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Berith. Now this is an event, as we read this, that was happening uh, when they originally came against, when Abimelech and his men came and they fought against uh, Shechem. This is like a, a snapshot of something that happened during that time. And so the Word of God is now just getting us in on, and focusing on that one piece of it when it happened. It says, So when all the men of the Tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of their god Berith. And this temple may have actually been part of this tower or maybe lying adjacent to it. And it was told Abimelech, verse 47, that all the men of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. And so Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, and he and all the people. Now Mount Zalman is probably just an area on the Mount of uh, either Jerizim or Mount Ebal. It's, it's, it's an area on that mountain. So um, even though they call it Mount Zalman, it's just an area um, where uh, on that mountain where they grabbed these branches, as we're going to read. So Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand, and he cut down a bow from the trees, and he took it, and he laid it on his shoulder, and he said to the people who were with him, what, what you've seen me do, make haste, and do as I have done. And so each of the people likewise cut down his own bow and followed Abimelech, put them against the stronghold, and set the stronghold on fire above them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women, so you can imagine, as they are in this tower thinking that they're secure, uh, Abimelech gets this bright idea of just taking a branch and putting it down at the base of this thing, and everybody's piling their branches on, and then they just light the thing up, and it's basically a, a, it's become a, a cooker. And so everyone inside of it, unfortunately, dies. And so the fire of Shechem, you know, from coming out from Abimelech, destroys the men of Shechem. And so we see that prophecy uh, that uh, Jotham had spoken earlier coming to pass very literally. So then, then after that happened, notice what happens in verse 50. It says, Then Abimelech went to Thebes, uh, or Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes, and he took it. Now this town is about 11 miles northeast of Shechem. So they've already attacked the men in Shechem. They've taken the, uh, all the people in the tower. They burnt that down. And now, because... Thebes, which was to the north about 11 miles, uh, they were confederate with Shechem, so they're thinking to themselves, Abimelech's going, well, we're going to go and we're going to destroy them too because they were in on this whole thing. And so notice what happens. He goes and it says, But there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and the women, all the people of the city, they fled there and they shut themselves in, and then they went up to the top of the tower. And I don't know if news hadn't got to them yet about what happened in Shechem, but whether, whether it did or whether it didn't, they, it was their only place of, of, of protection. So they go inside this tower, and Abimelech's thinking, hmm, I did it once, I can do it again. So he, do, he does the exact same thing, and hoping for the same result. And it says in verse 52, So Abimelech came 
as far as the tower and fought against it. And he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. But notice, a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And an upper millstone, you recall that a millstone, there's a big stone underneath it that lies on the ground, and then there's a, 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 like a, tr- a path in the middle, and then there's a, a smaller stone that's pretty significant and weighs quite a bit, and that's what the, the mule or people would use to go around and crush the grapes or crush the grain, whatever they would use it for. But that upper millstone, this woman just pushes it over the top of the, of the tower and hits him right on the head and crushes his skull, and he dies, or he's about to die. He's, and it says, Then he quickly uh, turned to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me. Notice even in death his pride, you know, I don't, I don't want to be known as a man who was killed by a woman. Uh, so he says, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed me. So his young man thrust him through, and he died. And he died. And, you know, it, it reminds me of uh, when we were in Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5, how we heard of J.L. Uh, going against Sisera, who was the commander of uh, Jabin, the king of Hazor, of the Canaanites, and how J.L., remember, uh, thrust that tent spike uh, through Sisera's uh, temple right to the ground. You remember when she did that and um, and he died a horrible death, and, and by that, even by the hand of a woman, which in that culture uh, was a shame. It was uh, because, you know, he didn't die in valiant battle, and, you know, bullets are blazing, and swords are glaring. It was none of that. It was no glorious thing about that. He was sleeping with a, a tummy full of milk when uh, she drew that uh, tent stake through his temple. And... Um, you remember that the same thing happened to Saul. It's recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 31 where Saul went against the Philistines and the Philistines did the same thing. They wounded Saul so much so that he was mortally wounded and while he's still writhing around trying to, you know, knowing that he was going to die, he said the same thing to his armor bearer, you know, thrust me through with a sword uh, lest these, you know, Philistines come and they abuse me. And his armor bearer couldn't do it. Ended up um, um, Saul you know, ended up killing himself, and then his armor bearer killed himself. So it's kind of an awful thing. But notice what happens back in our text in verse 51. It says, When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. So not this man's revenge and his, uh, uh, his, his, his life came to fruition. You know, they probably realized that there was something about this that just wasn't right. And, and so finally, you know, they don't even continue in this battle at this point they just once they see that he's dead they're like you know we have no reason to to do any of this anymore either and so the men of israel saw that abimelech was dead they departed every man to his place thus god repaid the wickedness notice thus god repaid the wickedness of abimelech which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers so you know your sin will find you out and god pays you know, there is a time of reckoning, and uh, Abimelech, this was his time, that was his time of reckoning, and God brought it upon his own head, literally, uh, that millstone, that upper millstone fell on his head and killed him. And notice, and all the evil 
of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads. And how did he do that? Remember, they, he even allowed Abimelech to come and to uh, set fire to the tower where everyone had died, over a thousand men and women. And so we see that God was going to return to Abimelech uh, what was due him and also what was due to the men of Shechem for going along with Abimelech and killing his seven, 70 brothers in cold blood. And so... And thus the prophecy of Jotham, which we read in verse 19 and 20, was fulfilled. And let me just read it again, just to kind of tie this whole thing up in a nice little bow. It says in Judges, uh, in verse 19, we just read this a little while ago. And this was the prophecy that Jotham, this son who had escaped of the 70 brothers, what he had said to the men of Shechem and to Abimelech. Notice, he says, If then you have acted in truth... And sincerity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem. And that's exactly what happened as he set that tower on fire. And also, what happens, this prophecy that Jotham had said, then rejoice, he says, But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo, which is this, uh, this tower. And let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And, and that's exactly what happened as well. They, you know, he got the millstone uh, on his head and died. And so Abimelech was killed along with the destruction, the destruction of Shechem and its inhabitants. And let's just go on to the first five verses of Judges chapter 10 because uh, that's kind of the end of the story for Abimelech. But these next two, these next five verses kind of go in line with this fifth period. Um, you recall when we were talking about Gideon, that was the fourth period uh, of the Judges. There's seven different periods. And right now what we just um, are going to be finishing up here is this fifth period. And that lasts really from chapter 9 through the fifth verse of chapter 10 is this fifth Fifth period, there we go. So notice, and, and what we're going to be looking at is two individuals, and this will go pretty quickly because there's not a, a lot known about them, but Tola and Jair were uh, what they would call minor judges, um, even though they're, they judged uh, for, for quite a while. They, um, well, let's just read it. It says, After Abimelech, there, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. And so we don't know much about this gentleman, and uh, we don't even know what kind of enemies were against Israel at this time. It could have been just the aftermath of the reign of Abimelech and, and all that treachery and all of that stuff. It, it could have just been he was ruling over them just to kind of bring peace to that area. And it says that he judged Israel 23 years. That's quite a long time. And it says, and he died and was buried in Shamir. And then Jair is the one who ruled after him. And, and we believe that this time that Jair ruled was possibly around the time where Ruth lived. And around this time period where um, when we get into Ruth after Judges, uh, this is kind of the time period that Ruth was living. And so it says, after him, after Tola, rose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they also had 30 towns, which are called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. 
and Jair died and was buried in Camon. And so, again, not much known about these two uh, judges of, of Israel at this time. And so, you know, as we look over Abimelech, we just see a man who was completely governed by this desire to, um, to, to be a leader and to rule over people and just uh, filled with selfish ambition, willing to do anything and everything to get uh, that position and isn't it true that whenever we desire something that God has not uh, designed for our lives, it, it always ends in heartache. It always ends in pain. It always ends in, in disaster. And it would have been far better for Abimelech to just realize that you know God had not called him to this because he had to even pay men to follow him and to, to get this deed done. It would have been so much... Um, it, you know, whenever you again, whenever you have to pay your, you know, someone to go after your enemies, you're you're in a, a bad spot because if they're not willing to go themselves and they have to be paid, it just it just it 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 just smacks of personal ambition, uh, personal vendetta kind of thing, and that's kind of what we see happening with Abimelech, and it didn't end well. We know that, and God made sure that that not only he but the men of Shechem also were repaid or recompensed uh, for their deeds. And so that, that's something that's important for us to always uh, consider and to always know that God has a plan for each of us. And the best plan um, is to submit to God, is to find out what He has created you to do, you know, to, to really love Him and to allow Him to mold and shape you. And to me, that's one of the wonderful things about being a Christian is as we walk with Him, as we learn in His Word about these people, because none of us are, are beyond what happened to Abimelech. You know, even today, there are, there are people, even Christians, who have to really, they, they really struggle with uh, selfish ambition. They still struggle with issues and, and because we're not perfect. But God has forgiven us, right? And so He's still working things out. He's still shaping us. And so let Him shape you, would you? Let Him shape you and let Him reveal to you what His plan is for your life. Don't be so concerned about what your will for your life is. Surrender to the will of God. And to me, for me personally, that took me, well, it took me longer than 24 years because even when I was 24, I gave my heart to the Lord. But it was an unfolding of God's will through when I was 24 up until recently, in the last couple of years, you know, he was just, con you know, slowly, slowly doing things in my life. And, and he's doing the same thing in your life, you know, and, and continue to pray about that. Don't let yourself get lazy and, 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 and think that, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. You know, sometimes we can kind of just throw up our hands like that. But, but trust the Lord and pray for His will to be done. I remember when I was a young believer, one of the things that scared me more than anything is I was reading a book on how to know the, you know God's will for your life because I was really nervous about this whole idea of God's will for my life. I really wanted to know, but I didn't know how to do it because I had heard so much about, you know, you got to let God do the work. And I'm like, well... How do I let God do the work and I don't do anything? But the, the secret of it is, is that God is working, and if I really surrender to Him you know, along the way, He has a way of doing things and kind of hemming me in and kind of getting me to go on the right path. 
And when I'm, when I'm resisting him, what I'm doing is I'm breaking down the wall and going a different way. But when I allow myself, even when I don't understand, to be hemmed in and say, Lord, and this is how we, how we pray, right? We, we say, Lord, your will be done. Would to God that Abimelech had, had done that. This whole thing would have been so much different. He would probably still be, had been alive for quite a while. And his life would have been better. But he, he's breaking down the wall and saying, I want my own will done. I want this to be done. And God, you know, if he would have just prayed and said, God, what is your will for my life? I'd like to be a leader. Uh, search my heart. Why is that? Why do I want to be a leader? Why do I want to be in a place of authority? Because the reason behind those, the motives, that's God is concerned about all of that. It's the motive. What is the motive of my heart? And so knowing the will of God was a really big deal for me. And I got to the point where I realized, you know what? If I really pray for His will to be done, and, and you can pray for this too, and regardless of how old you are, never stop praying for God's will to be done in your life. Because as long as you have air breathing through your lungs, He's still working on you, and He still wants to influence others through you. And He's got a plan, even now. Even now, no matter what state you're in, He's got a plan. Pray about it. Ask Him. Say, Lord, and this is how we do it. We say, Lord... I want this. I'm hoping for this, but your will be done, God. Your will be done. I, I want to go this direction. I want to go to school. I want to do this. But Lord, if that's not the university you want me to go into, if this is not the job you want me to go into, whatever it may be, whatever opportunity, pray about it. And you watch what God does. He has a way of miraculously intervening in situations and other people's lives to accomplish not only his will for your life, but theirs as well. That's the the chess game of all chess games. Have you ever thought about that? It's like all of us Christians, he's got us all and he knows exactly what he wants to do. He knows how we can do it. He knows that if we pray about this, he's going to bring this into our life that we didn't even consider. We're not even aware of it. And yet if we didn't pray, he, he might not bring that, in, that influence into our life. And so how important is it? Again, that's why I think we pray by faith, right? We pray and we ask God to do things. But if we don't pray, then a different result comes to pass. And so then it brings a gravity, really, to my life then. And then it's like, I need to be a man. I need to be a woman of prayer. I need to be praying instead of just throwing up my hands and saying, Ah, oh, God, he's going to do what he's going to do. Well, if you do that, you're going to be missing out on so much of life. Because when you submit your will to the, to, to the Lord, wonderful and beautiful things happen. And they happen at the right time. And sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes it takes years, sometimes it even takes decades. And then he brings it to fruition. And when he does, oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, there's promises that God made to me years ago. And I didn't, never could see how it could come to pass. Didn't even want it really. And then how he brings it to pass. Because you're willing. You're just an open vessel. You're willing. And so... My encouragement tonight for all of you as we've read this passage, you know, what is, what is your heart's desire according to the will of God? You know, are you submitting yourself to His will? Or are you still trying to force your way like Abimelech into a position of authority? And, or, or are you just surrendering? And there is a wonderful thing when we surrender. There's no fight. Do you ever notice that? When you put up the white flag, there's no fight then, is there? No, you're giving up. You're giving up to another. And see, that's what discipleship is. That's what a relationship is. That's what love is. Isn't that what Jesus did? He says, I willingly gave up my life for you, for me. I willingly gave it. Nobody took it from me. I willingly gave it. He put up the white flag and said, I surrender, Father, to your will. And, 
And what more beautiful thing happened than that? And so surrender, surrender, surrender to the will of God. Let Him do what He wants to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this um, passage here in Your Word, God. And Lord, we do want Your will to be done. We don't want to be people that are fighting against You all the time. We don't want to be people that are so bent on our own wills, Lord, that, we, we, that we'll never stop. Lord, we want to stop everything if we have to and say, Lord, Your will be done and really mean it, Father. Please help us, Lord. Help each one of us to discover the wonderful, glorious plan that You have for each of us, Lord. It's more glorious than anything we could imagine. Lord, I know this from my own self, and I know many, and hopefully all of us, know the same thing. But God, we have this crazy thing in in our own will. Even when You're dwelling in us, Lord, You don't, you don't, uh, uh, you don't constrict us from um, uh, being disobedient even. Lord, you, will, you even allow that. You, even though it may, we may be miserable in the process, God, it, it's a mystery. But so thankful, God, that you love us. So, Lord, encourage us tonight, Lord, again, to just surrender, to put up the white flag, and let you have your will done in whatever it is that you want to do. Search us, Lord, try us. And like David said in Psalm 52, I believe it is, or Psalm 51, search me, Lord, and know my heart, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and then lead me in the way of everlasting, the way everlasting. Would you do that tonight for each of us, Lord? We just thank you and ask that you might do that in Jesus' name. Amen.